everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Crime and Coffee Couple. My name's Allison. And as always, my name's Mike. Hello, Mike. Well, I guess technically when I was born, my name was Michael. Kind of changed it to Mike. One of those things. I won't get into the whole story. No, we don't need to get into that whole story, Mike. Yeah, yeah. How you doing today, Beb? I'm doing pretty good. You got your coffee ready? I do. Go I've got ahead. my crime ready. I've got my coffee ready. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to your uh, story this week. Yeah, we got a couple of dogs in the room with us as we record this. Babysitting a big old pug. Yes. She's a gorgeous fawn pug, and we used to have a black pug, so pugs are a, a very near soft and spot. dear to our hearts. Yes, absolutely. And she's a little sweetheart, and we're loving her. I'm scratching her little head right now. So, if you hear any snorting in the background, it's it's our little puggy here. Uh, yeah, it's definitely not me. So, don't worry about that. We hope not, anyway. Yeah. Um, what else is going on with you? I just um, I, I'm very excited to get a delivery of three shirts. I ordered from some classic t-shirt place you ever see i don't know you probably don't get these ads that i do but like dad bods you know getting a t-shirt that'll like show off the good things and not just my big breasts no mike i don't get ads for dad bods yeah. because i'm not a dad right right so i i got an ad and i'm like okay i'm gonna try i've got like 15 three 15 shirts nice. i'm a, i'm a miser i'm a frugal person i'm just gonna see how these work see if they fit me right you know i'm working out a little bit got a little bit of muscle I'll see how they look you got to tell me and you're minimizing your closet getting rid of all the crummy worn out shirts that don't fit you well and maybe if you find yourself a something that works, get a few more of them. Holy smoke. Speaking of that, you are watching Marie Kondo like it's your job. I know. I'm obsessed with that and the Tiny House Nation I what's was the obsessed name? with. Is, what's the name of Marie Kondo? Sparking Joy is one of them. Yeah. The other one, there's like a couple of them on Netflix. But, but you're watching Sparking Joy and also Tiny House Nation. You're like, well, maybe we should get into a tiny house when we retire. I'm like, I don't want to live in 400 square feet. Why not? I mean, downsizing is one thing, but 400 square feet is, I'd say, I mean, if you want to do it, go for it. But I, it's insane to me. I mean, to me, I'm sick of being a slave to a rut, rat race. Is that what I'm trying I to say? Or say? rut race? Rut row. <laughs> rut row. <laughs> I'm sick of being a slave to the bills. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it all makes sense to live in a smaller footprint so that you don't have this money just like going out the window every month. I'm right. sick and tired of it and I'm tired and sick of it. Yeah, well, hey, someday, maybe 10, 20 years, you can live in a tiny house and I'll just live in an actual small house. <laughs> so, Well, then we're going to have double the bills, Mike. Yeah, hey, well, it's okay. I'm, so, I'm going to have my car table and a, and a folding chair. That's all you need. And a lazy boy for my uh, gaming. You're a simple man. Yep. Thank, yeah, he is. Thank you. Thank Simple you for noticing. minded, too. Hey, oh. Hey, oh. Why don't we get started today? Well, let's Allison. go ahead and get started. So, um, to just give you kind of what the story is about, it is the Pettit family murders. It takes place in July of 2007 in Connecticut, just okay. to give you a little frame of what we'll be talking about today. You said today. 1976? What the shit? <laughs> Where am I? What planet am I on? Uh, you said something six. I said 2007. It, okay, it's a lot of information. Pettit, 2007. Got it. In Massachusetts? Got it. Yeah. Uh, okay. No, Connecticut. Okay, close Did enough. Did I say, am I crazy? Okay, we got to stop this. No, it's it's fine. I'm going to no. go back when this is posted, and we're going to listen to it and see if maybe I am crazy and oh, you're no. saying. Oh, no. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I'm an idiot, so that's, it's on me. <laughs> so we're just going to go ahead and get started. Okay. So before the events of this story took place, place on Sunday, July 22nd, 2007, the Pettit family was your typical American household. Husband and father, who was 50-year-old William Pettit Jr., was an endocrinologist, and his wife of 22 years, Jennifer Hawk Pettit, was a pediatric nurse and co-director of the health center at private boarding school. Healthcare-oriented family. 
Very much so. And that's actually where they met was in a hospital. So the couple met in 1985 while Bill was a third year medical student and Jennifer was a nurse. They had their first daughter, Haley, in October of 1989. And then Michaela was born in November of 1995. At the time of the story, Haley was 17 and Michaela was 11. Haley had recently graduated from high school with honors. She was planning to study medicine at Dartmouth in the fall. This was her dad's alma mater. I guess when he would do like weekend rounding at the hospital, she would come along with him. So that sparked her interest in medicine. So that was the plan. I wonder if they say, "Mm, we're going to Dartmouth. I don't think so. I, that's how I picture it. Like, um, <laughs> welcome to Dartmouth. That must be Nigel with the brain. Right. I mean, very nice school. I yeah, I don't know anything. I know the name Dartmouth. I don't even know where it is. Ivy League, I would have no chance of getting yeah. in there. I, I would not, not either, especially because I can't speak. They right. wouldn't allow me that's into that school. That's a big negative. First and foremost. Right. So before graduating, um, Haley had participated in varsity cross country, crew, and basketball, and she was actually captain of the basketball team. Wow. So despite all of her activities, she still managed to find time to raise funds for multiple sclerosis research. Her mom, Jennifer, was diagnosed with MS in 1998, and Haley wanted to do something to help the cause. Rather than just sit there in fear that her mother was going to deteriorate, she wanted to actually get up and take action, which I find very admirable. Absolutely. That's incredible. A lot of people just, you know, sit back. A lot of people don't have the resources and the ability to do that, so that's okay, but good for her. And I mean, she was a child while she was doing this. That's very, very mature and proactive. It helps to have parents, you know, like your dad, who's a physician right and then your mom who's in healthcare, and it's like you to see that it's possible that you can change something absolutely so um she basically for seven years she would ask family and friends to sponsor her for her annual connecticut ms walk naming her team haley's hope she ended up raising over fifty five thousand dollars for the fight against ms Despite all of the achievements she had at school, on the outside with the fundraising, you would have never known. She was not a boastful person. She was very, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Um, Not egotistical. Yeah, not egotistical. I guess. uh, Wasn't looking for like thanks. Modest is the word I was thinking of. Yes. So she just was a real go-getter. And then her sister, 11-year-old Michaela, she loved music. She and her dad would garden, and she absolutely loved cooking. I guess she was a huge fan of cooking shows. Wow, an 11-year-old that loves cooking. Right? Man, I know. sign me up. So she even, on the night that this story takes place, she made the family a spaghetti dinner. So she was just, you know, very sweet about that. And her plan was to take over the MS um, fundraising once her sister went off to college. She even chose a name for her walk, which would have been Michaela's Miracle. So she was known for her thoughtful and gentle nature. So the Pettits lived in Cheshire, Connecticut, and that summer, it was a Sunday. It was a very typical day for the family. They attended church in the morning, and then Bill played golf that afternoon with his dad, while Michaela and Jennifer went to the beach. Haley planned to go to the beach as well. She was going with her friends, and she told her family that she would be home in time for dinner. So around 7.30 p.m. that evening, 48-year-old Jennifer and 11-year-old Michaela headed to the local stop and shop to grab some groceries. Because Michaela planned to make dinner for her family that night, they were just picking up some odds and ends for her to do that. But little did they know, as they innocently walked through the grocery store, somebody had eyes on them. And this person was 26-year-old Joshua Kamas. 
Carvet. I'm sorry. Let me repeat that again. Kama Sarjevsky is her, his last name. Karma Sarjevsky. Yes. Kama Sarjevsky. And it's a mouthful. I said it 10 million times in my head while I was doing this research. I'm going to just for ease of pronunciation, I'm going to call him Josh. Makes sense. Story. I think we can all agree that's better. So you can see. Also, who gives a shit about his last name? Exactly. Good. You could see CCTV footage and images of Jennifer and Michaela walking through the grocery store as a typical evening of a mom and a daughter doing so. Like anybody walking in any grocery store in America right now. And it's just very ominous to see those pictures and know what you know, was lying ahead. For you them. want to reach in there and be like, girls, just leave, like, hurry, leave, leave, leave. Yeah. And, and that is what they did. Innocently enough, that's what they did. Really? So it's you'll, you'll find out what happened. So um, Josh was on parole at the time for drug drug related crimes and very heavily burglary charges. His MO was basically to break into the homes of wealthy families to help support his crystal meth addiction. That's the problem, man. You know, you think like, well, who's going to want to break into our house? But it's like, it's somebody who's just whacked out on drugs and needs to get some money anyhow, any way they can. They don't, you're not thinking with a straight you know, brain. Like we had somebody that was you know, probably doing meth, like what, five doors down. Mm-hmm. And it's a scary thing because maybe they can have a friend over who's also doing meth and then it's like, oh, let's just, you know, try to find anybody who's not home and walk into their house and take stuff. You know, they don't care if they kill people. They just want that next fix. Now, I will tell you, though, that Josh didn't look like your classic meth head. I don't know that he was like whacked out or strung out on mouth meth at this time. No, it could be pills, could be meth. It's all the same kind of stuff. It it's could that. be. But I don't know that he was actively using at this time. Okay. I don't know that he had recently been released from prison, actually. So I'll, I'll go more into that. But he didn't look like your classic like sores on the face super aged well probably because he was in prison and didn't have the opportunity to exactly you're probably right there so basically in december of 2002 josh was sentenced to a nine-year um prison sentence but he was paroled in april of 2007 only a couple months before this story actually took place about three months before he had been arrested for 18 burglaries slash home invasions he was extremely ballsy during these times he would go into the people's homes while they were sleeping, do his thing, get get their things, steal them, but then like kind of linger in the homes <laughs> and actually stand in the bedrooms where they were sleeping and listening to like listen to their breathing. Wow, so he was kind of getting off on it a little bit. Right. Like, Man, I think he I'm was in your house. A rush. Yeah, I'm in your house, you have no idea. Yes. <laughs> he was getting a rush from that, and I so heard cool. he would even break into like sheriff's homes and do this. Wow, just to get that next rush. Exactly. And then it's like, what else are you gonna try to do? And here we are with him looking at these girls. So in his sentencing transcripts, he was referred to as a calculated cold-blooded predator with a mental abnormality or psychiatric problem that needs to be addressed. But somehow this information never reached the parole board <laughs> How the and hell? he was let out. How the hell does that not reach the parole board? So he was sentenced to nine years in prison. He only served about five. Right. And from what I read, the max sentence could have been up to 10 years for each offense and he had been like pinned to 18. Right. So, how do you not get the max offense? Right. Out of that? He literally served five years. Yeah. That's so, tough. sadly, he's out and about 
Uh, maybe because it's not you know, aggravated or, you know, he had no guns on him, maybe, you know, when he was caught doing so, because that'll be a lot less, you know. Yeah, you wanna... I, I'm not sure of those exact circumstances. Right. But at the time of this story, Josh lived with his parents and he had full custody of his daughter. There's little information. I don't know how old she was, anything like that. I mean, the only way that could happen is if the other the mother's like a complete deadbeat or dead. She somehow. was a drug addict. Okay. So um, he had been granted custody of his daughter that spring. So only like maybe a couple months before the story took place because his ex-girlfriend was in rehab for her drug addiction. So earlier that year, he had been dating an 18-year-old named Caroline. He, her dad, Adam and Lee, was against this relationship. Keep in mind, he's 26. He's dating an 18-year-old. Ooh, that is a huge loser. We talked about many times that happens. And girls, if you're 18, 17, 16, and a 26, 28-year-old's interested in you, that guy's a huge loser, just I mean, so you know. he's edging on 30, and he's going to her high school dance. Yes. I mean, that's just pathetic. But her dad was completely against the relationship. Number one, he knew of his criminal background, as any father or mother would be like, uh, no red flag there. But in addition, she was only 18, but looked a lot younger. He basically thought of Josh as a pedophile and thought that his only interest in his daughter was that she looked even younger than 18. I mean, to me, when I saw pictures of her, she looked like she was maybe 15. She had braces and stuff? No, but oh. she just had a baby face. Okay. So his dad was convinced that it was just like, him being a pedophile after his daughter so not a good situation there so um during his confession after everything that happened of what goes down in the story josh said that that night he was waiting at the stop and shop for a contractor to make a payment while waiting he saw a mother and a daughter and chose to follow them wow so just out of the blue not necessarily okay so that's what he said he said it wasn't premeditated he just happened to see them that evening he followed them home he saw that they lived in a very nice house drove a very nice car and thought hmm it would be nice to be there someday yeah well to be there to take all their shit and his uh, girlfriend at the time this 18 year old said they would oftentimes drive around because this area has like gorgeous homes it's a very wealthy area and he would often you know look at these homes and think i want to live there someday i instantly think of the criminals from home alone yes (laughs) and you know it just comes down to the fact like you just want things to be handed to you right you know this is a doctor and a pediatric nurse that's living in this home i heard that dr pettit would leave the house at basically seven in the morning and come home at like 9 30 at night the man was working his ass off his wife was working her ass off that's how they got the house that they were living in and i'm sorry did you say pediatrician she was a pediatric nurse he was was. an endocrinologist got it got it so it's somebody like this just wants it handed to them on a silver platter so they're basically just taking it from the people who do work hard yeah he's going into these homes and stealing their crap that's the idea it's like um people that think that belongs to them and they can just take whatever it's just annoys the shit out of me so but even more sinister some believe that josh had an inappropriate interest in children and many believe that michaela caught his eye and that it really didn't have anything to do with the fact that they drove a nice car or lived in a nice home and michaela is 11 at this time. michaela is 11 jesus christ we have a 10 year old who will be 11 this november and it sickens me to even think that a 26 year old would be looking at my daughter well with how some of them dress now it's like it's like pedophile target basically it's disgusting is what it is yeah so some people think it wasn't the money it was michaela that got him to come back to their home so regardless he claimed that his intention that night was only to rob the family as they slept 
and what happened wasn't his intention. So that's that's his story. So after dinner that night, Haley and Michaela watched Army Wives, and then they headed to bed. Bill went into the sunroom to read his newspaper. He ended up falling asleep on the couch. The girls' show ended around 11. They locked up the house. They headed to bed. They left a light on in the kitchen. They didn't like to have their cat in the pitch dark, so they would put a light on in the kitchen every night for the cat, which I thought was adorable. (laughs) So Michaela headed to her mom's room. I guess the two of them were reading the latest Harry Potter book together, so they continued on with that. So Bill woke up at some point in the in the nighttime, but he didn't want to wake his wife, especially because she was dealing with MS. He didn't want to disrupt her sleep, so he just stayed sleeping on the couch. So just before 3 a.m. that morning, which now we're moving on to July 23rd, 2007, Josh returned to the pet at home with an accomplice. He was with 44-year-old Stephen Hayes. The two met in 2006 when they shared a room in a halfway house in Hartford, Connecticut, shortly after they were both released from prison. So Hayes was a recovering crack addict and a seasoned burglar, just as Josh was. Oh, good. I'm glad they found each other. You know, two peas in a pod. Yeah. So at this time, Hayes was living with his mother in Winstead, Connecticut. Not a good situation. His brother was living in the home, too. His brothers were interviewed in many of the documentaries I watched and thought that their brother was a complete scumbag. He tried to pull like that he had psychiatric issues, but they're like, no, he's just a horrible person and an absolute manipulator. That's the crutch that he's using to make you think that he's just crazy. Right. He's not. So um, Hayes at this point is in a very precarious position because his mother was being getting fed up with his shenanigans and she at the time was basically threatening to kick him out of the house. She was done with it. Well, she's sick of seeing crimes and things happen under her roof and, you know, I'm not going to want to call the cops on you at some point. Get the hell out of my house. Right. That's how you want to live your life. And the two kind of talked about starting a contracting business together. Of course, you know, why work when you can just steal other people's shit like we talked about? So nothing came of that. They did odd contracting jobs, but they didn't have like a steady job with a steady income coming in. So they're just looking to rip other people off at this point. Good person. So the night of the home invasion, the two were texting each other at around 7.45 p.m. Hayes said, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. After an hour, Josh still hadn't responded. So at 8.45 that night, Hayes wrote, we still on? Josh responded, yes. Hayes said, soon? Josh said, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. Hayes responded, dude, the horses want to get loose. LOL. Hold your horses. What a nerd. I mean. Who says hold your horses? I I know. (laughs) So their plan was going into the night, they were going to tie the family up as they ransacked the home. One of the things I said that they were going to tie them up and bring them to sit in the car while this went down. So they specifically wanted to wake them and tie them so they could really get as much as they could out of the house. Apparently so. And from what I researched and read to this point, that never happened on any of their previous burglaries. Right. That's my next question. Josh is not, you know, he would sit there and watch them sleep. This was very different from what had been done in the past, which again makes me think maybe it had something to do with poor little Michaela. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Why did you wake them? So regardless, they plan to what they're saying is leave them unharmed. So Josh said that the two wore face masks and rubber gloves as they entered the house. They broke in. 
So after breaking into the house armed with a gun and a baseball bat that apparently they had just kind of found laying about maybe in one of the neighbor's yards that night. Once you bring the gun into play, that's a big time, right. big time felony. Exactly. So as they enter the house, they see Bill asleep on the couch in the sunroom. They take the baseball bat and start bashing him in the head. Jesus Christ. Four to five times. And from what I was reading, Bill was taking Coumadin, which is a blood thinner. So he was bleeding far more than you would be bleeding had you not been on this medication. Right. Oh, my God. So Bill began to scream and shriek in pain as he's sleeping and woken up from being bashed in the head. Can you imagine that? That would be incredible. Just, I can't even deal with that That's no insane. and you're you're so disoriented because you're sleeping right and i like i'm thinking to myself if i got bashed in the head while sleeping i'd be like is this a dream like you know I, it takes me a good you know two minutes to kind of know what the hell's going on in the morning so i just like holy cow and you're getting i thank god he had enough nerve to scream and shout that's that's terrible so after that they bound him with rope and plastic zip ties around his wrists and ankles and from there they headed upstairs towards jennifer michaela and Haley who were all sleeping so they started with Jennifer's room and of course I said that Jennifer and Michaela had been reading the latest Harry Potter book they both fell in asleep in Jennifer's bed together so Hayes placed his hand over Jennifer's mouth and shook her awake Josh did the same to Michaela so none of them heard their father screaming downstairs So they woke um, both Michaela and Jennifer, and apparently they took Michaela and separated her from her mom. They put her in her bedroom, Hmm. and then they moved on to Haley. They basically bound all of them, same as they did with Bill, wrists, ankles, and then they placed pillowcases over their heads to kind of obscure their vision of them. And duct tape or something? No, there was no duct tape involved. Really? So they can yell and scream? Yes. Hmm. Yes. They can yell and scream. Interesting. So um, when you hear the confession tapes of Josh, it, it sickened me because he continued to refer to Michaela as KK. So the person who's interviewing him is like, KK, are you, are you talking about Michaela? And he's like, yeah. He's like, did you make that up? And he's like, no, his, her mom and her sister kept referring to her as that. And the first thing that popped into my head is, how dare you call her by her cute nickname that her family came up with? Don't, yeah. don't call her KK. It's not your right to do you so. You asshole. Yeah. And so, not to mention like their names too. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I just like, you would think you're trying to rob the place. Like the little girl, you know, the mother, I guess, I don't know. It's just, uh, there's so much wrong. But I will tell you, in listening to the confession tapes, he is fascinated with Michaela. Never spoke much of Jennifer, never mentioned Haley, who is 17. Wow. So he continued to talk about Michaela. And again, every time he referred to her as KK, which literally made my stomach clench every time I heard him say it. I wouldn't be able to listen to that. So he said he was in KK's room and he and her sat and talked about summer plans like you asshole you are uh, invading her home you've taken her out of the bed she fell asleep in with her mom she's an 11 year old child and the way he's telling the story is of they were just chatting we are friends we made quick friends together it's like just take the shit and get out man you already bashed your dad's head in and they don't know exactly what happened downstairs because they're being woken up out of a sleep yeah so he said that he got michaela a glass of water and that he continued to tell 
both Michaela and Haley and Jennifer that he was not there to hurt them and only wanted money. That's what he continued to say. So the two began to search the house for cash. They took breaks throughout the time. They raided their fridge, drank their beer, uh, gathered up any kind of change, money, etc. There was pictures of this as well. In the meantime, they took um, Bill, who was bound in the like sunroom area. They took him down. I Apparently, they led him via gunpoint to the basement where they tied him to a support pole. So they he was maintained with the binding around his wrists and ankles. And then Josh went and got him pillows and blankets to make him more comfortable. How kind. Oh, you're so swell. Look at you being so considerate. Um, any idea how much they gathered? So they're gathering, but really what caught their interest was they saw the bank statement that indicated they had somewhere between thirty to $40,000 in an account at Bank of America. Mm-hmm. So this made the light bulb turn on that we need to wait until the morning, until the Monday morning, until the bank opens around 9 a.m. Yeah, we've got all these people gagged and bound and may as well just wait and try to get them to ATM or the bank and take out stuff. And then, then we'll leave them. Right. So in the meantime... They're entering the house around 3 a.m. They don't get to go to the bank until about 9. So now they've got some time to kill. So in the meantime, um, Stephen goes to the garage. Hayes, I call him Stephen or Hayes. He goes to their garage. He sees some gas tanks sitting around. He takes these gas tanks and goes to find a gas station to fill them. It's like, what What are you intending to do with these gas tanks if you only want the money and you're not going to hurt these people? So this happens during the night. And then at around... I knew this, like, the Stephen Hayes guy is probably the whole reason that they're being violent. I imagine, is Stephen the one that bashed in Bill's head? Was it both of them? Like, did they say anything? They didn't exactly specify who did what. It's weird that Josh had never been violent, and then all of a sudden Stephen comes around, and this is happening now. Now this guy obviously wants to burn them. Right. So, you know, it's it's hard. It's muddled to say who's the mastermind in the violence sure. that's, that's happening. So around 9, 10 a.m., Hayes takes Jennifer to the local Bank of America and ordered her to withdraw the $15,000, $15, I should say, from her account. He so it's was 15, not 50? 1515. So, okay. So they had somewhere between 30 and 40 in the account. He tells her to take 15. What? Why? I don't know. Yeah. But that was the number. Okay. So he stayed in the car while Jennifer went into the bank to get this withdrawal made. Jennifer walks in. She slips the bank teller a note explaining her situation and what's happening. Of course. So the bank. And they know to look out for this. These people are all trained to look at people in distress, taking out a big amount of money. Sure. Like this is like 101 what they get trained on. Exactly. So the bank teller immediately takes the note and brings it to her manager who immediately calls 911. This call goes through about 9:21 a.m. The call indicated the manager is telling the 911 dispatcher, "We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and her children are being held at their house. The people are in the car outside the bank. She's getting $15,000 to bring out to them." The police were uh, the police were then told that they were planning on hurting her family if she didn't do this and indicated that her husband and daughters were home with some of the others or please tell me the police sent people to both locations <sighs> okay i can't tell you that so you'll okay. hear you're I, gonna I'm hear just, more i'm just talking out loud this is it's it's pretty maddening so um she said the police were told that they would kill her children and her husband if she didn't do what she was told she told them that they're that they're actually being very nice and they told her that they wouldn't hurt anybody if she got back there with the money 
So, and she believes them is what the the manager told the 911 dispatcher. All this from a fucking note? Like, like, okay. I I, don't know exactly what Jennifer's note said, but this is what the manager told the police. Yeah. If I'm the manager, I want the police to get to the places like they might die. I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm going to lie and say, assume the worst possible thing. Cause I don't, it sounds like you're trying to get out of this, get your asses to the house and get here. It's half the team there, half the team here. Let's go. And the bank manager basically told the police that she seems petrified. So as this call is going down, Jennifer doesn't want to stick around and wait to see what happens because she's terrified that Stephen is going to start to get suspicious and do something terrible. Right. So she needs to get her point across of what's happening and go back to Stephen so that he's not wise to the fact that she's actually alerted, you know, sounded the alarm. Well, you got to think that getting 15 grand in cash out would take a little bit. You know, 10, 15 minutes. I don't know how long she was in the bank. So Jennifer left the bank and Hayes drove the Pettit's SUV back to their home. Shortly after the call was made, police were dispatched. And what I heard was that it was very quick. So there must have been a police officer close to the area of where their home was. From what I read, there was a police officer that actually beat Jennifer and Hayes back to the house. Great. He watched them enter their garage and close the garage okay he needs backup one guy is not gonna be able to take this guy out assuming he has a gun and and i will go into much more detail about what went down with the police do you know what time they got home they got home somewhere i think around 9 30 ish because the call was made at 9 21 yeah so i'm gonna go on with the story of what happens in the home and then i'm gonna circle back to the whole police situation okay Okay? i don't want to get off track so um Sadly, as Jennifer is doing this bank transaction and sounding the alarm, little does anybody know that Josh is staying back at the house and he rapes Michaela. What a mother effer. I know. Uh, I didn't want to hear that. That sucks. So he did this while she remained tied to her bed. And in the meantime, he's taking explicit photos of her on his cell phone. Well, now I can see why people tend to believe that he was a pedophile, because that's a pedophile. Right. That's a definition. What a fucking... Pardon my French. So after returning back home from the bank, Josh shows Hayes the pictures that he took of Michaela on his cell phone and urges him to do the same to Jennifer. So, you know, Hayes, being the good little puppy, decides to, you know, listen to what Josh has to say and ends up raping jennifer in her living room awesome so as this is a couple of scumbags that should be dead yes as this is all happening bill is in the basement he has no idea what's going on upstairs he can't hear really much of anything at one point he did hear his wife calmly speaking about the the whole bank situation meanwhile he's like okay well things are going along hopefully you just give them all the money we have let's just have our family together safe and exactly and he's in and out of consciousness during this time because his head's bashed in yes and it it was a a wicked mark on his head and he's losing blood yeah he actually lost i read seven pints of blood is what he lost so while he's in the basement and he's in and out of consciousness he's trying to get himself free So he is standing up and sitting down against the pole to try to loosen his bindings. Yeah, just friction. Slowly. I mean, if you have three hours, go ahead. That's a great idea. He did manage to break the zip ties that were tied to his wrists. Awesome. So he had a exit like from the basement to the outside. It was kind of like those cellar 
doors. Yeah, that, if you've ever, I mean, here like in Florida, tornado, we don't right. um, type of situation. At the top of the, the, yeah. So he was able to exit his house from the outside, not having to go up through the stairs to leave through the house. So he still had his ankles bound by rope and had to basically roll across his yard to make it to his neighbor's house. Okay. He's screaming for help. The Ooh. girls are inside. The girls are inside. When his neighbor came out and saw him, he didn't even recognize him as Bill. So much blood That's on his face. That's how badly he had been beaten and yeah. his face was just obscured with blood. So the neighbor immediately calls 911 as well, says, you've got to get here. While this is happening, and I, you know what, I'm not even going to say what I was going to say because I'm going to talk about it later. But at all the, when all this is going down, Josh realizes that Bill has escaped. So he's also noticing that there's police cars and policemen hiding behind the trees outside. He lets Hayes know this, and Hayes basically snapped. He felt he had been betrayed by Jennifer. As if she owed him anything. It's probably a mental thing where you think like your friends now and it's like, oh, yeah, you're giving me this money. It's whatever. I'm sure there's a name for it similar to Munchausen's or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, there's that whole like Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Where, Which you would... know, you start to trust your your captor. Yeah. So this, he said, made him lose control. He started to strangle Jennifer and ended up killing her. So he knew he was done. He's going to kill her on his way out. What? A, I mean... They, that's the problem with waiting is that they're going to kill them on the inside. Right. They so, know that they're, they have no way out. Exactly. They're desperate. This is happening. The rape and the murder of Jennifer was somewhere between 930 and 950 in the morning. I can't help but think back to the bank manager calling the police. And At 921. Saying, and yeah. And saying that she's confident that she thinks they're not going to hurt anybody. Like, I don't know how that came out. That's, well, that's really weird. What you need to understand was that that did nothing to affect the sure. outcome. Okay. The police were dispatched immediately. Yeah. They beat Jennifer and Hayes to the home. Okay. That didn't slow anything from happening. The bank manager didn't do anything wrong. Okay. She relayed the contents of the note. So, um, meanwhile, Michaela and Haley are still bound to their beds with pillowcases over their head. Josh at this point said that Hayes takes the gasoline cans throughout the house. He doused the house. He poured the gasoline over Jennifer's dead body onto Michaela and onto Haley. During Josh's confession, he said that the burning of the house was nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with Hayes. He told them that he questioned him saying, you can't seriously be contemplating, excuse me, burning these two girls alive. But regardless, he did nothing to stop him. And it was never determined which of the two set the match because each one blamed the other. Sure. So, um... Basically, the house burst into flames. I would have to guess it was Hayes. I mean, if I had to take it, it doesn't matter. They're both equally complicit in this whole thing because neither stopped the other one. Exactly. And this all is about 33 minutes after the call was placed to the police, the first call from the bank. So the police are surrounding the whole place. Yes. They kill Jennifer. And now the Jennifer's on fire and the girls are on fire. While this is happening, yes. And they okay. could hear the girls screaming inside the house. The police could. Yes. And his, the dad, Bill. Bill is at the neighbor's house at this point. Yeah. So um, and a neighbor discovered, like I said, Dr. Pettit at 950. 
So at um, about the so at the criminals are fleeing the house. It's blazing at this point. They're leaving in the Pettit's car at nine fifty six a.m. Little do they know there's like blockades at the end of the streets that are stopping them from actually doing this. They actually end up crashing into one of the police cruisers. Oh. I saw the damage that was done. Good job by police blocking everything. Yeah, and so at ten oh one a.m. that morning they were arrested. So um, let me find myself here. So the home invasion ended up lasting seven hours. And the timeline of when Josh actually purchased the gasoline, I guess they had some involvement with the gas cans. They mentioned taking some from the Pettit household. But I heard that Josh had also purchased some gas cans. That made people think that this may have been a premeditated crime. Mm. Josh claims he just thought of it at the stop and shop. But when did he? How do you just think of just getting some gas cans? Exactly. Like for what asshole? And then you use them to set this house ablaze. Like initially I thought, well, you know, getting gas for your car so you don't have to stop. But then it's like, oh, uh, they're going to burn the house. Exactly. I mean, (laughs) okay. Nice try, asshole. So Stephen Hayes trial began on October 18th, 2010. And in December of 2010, Hayes apologized to the Pettit family for the pain he caused, saying, death for me will be a welcome relief, and I hope it will bring some peace and comfort to those I have hurt so much. The remaining Pettit. So the girls are all gone. I'll talk more about that, but yes. Ah, okay. none, of the, none of the females survived. And Bill's the only... Bill is the sole survivor Jesus of Christ, this attack. <laughs> so... During the trial, the prosecution called medical examiner Dr. H. Wayne Carver to the stand. Carver had performed the autopsies on both Haley and Michaela. They determined that they had died from smoke inhalation. So obviously we know they were alive when they were set ablaze. Yep. So it had been discovered that Michaela had been unable to free herself from her bindings to the bed and was found actually in her bed, whereas Haley actually had managed to get herself free. She was able to make it to the top of the staircase, but the smoke inhalation got her. Got her. So Jennifer's body was burned beyond recognition. Of course, she had died before. Well, they set the fire on her. Yes. So Carver reported that 75.6% of Michaela's oxygen carrying capacity of blood was filled with carbon monoxide. He said that even 30% would be lethal. So obviously it was this that was her cause of death. Yeah, well, your body shuts down and then while you're laying there Mm -hmm. inhaling more. He said there were no markers to tell if any of the skin burn injuries occurred before or after she died. So Josh's trial began on October 13th, 2011. During his hearing, Josh stood by what he had said during his confession that he had never planned on killing anyone that night. He added, I will never find peace within. My life will be a continuation of the hurt I caused. Don't care. Don't care. The clock is now ticking and I owe debt. I cannot ever repay. During Josh's trial, the jury learned that he had been adopted when he was two weeks old. It was reported that when he was about four to six years old, his foster brother, Scott Reitz, who was 11 years older than Josh, forced him to have anal and oral sex with him. Oh, geez. And so, that's where all this crap stems from. Yeah. He had a lot of trauma in his life that doesn't give him the green light to ever be, you know, be okay to do something like this. We have rules in society and you can't do that stuff. And it's unfortunate, but, you know, it's uh, like you said, I mean, he was right. He has a debt that he can never repay. Yeah, and according to the testimony of the sexual trauma that he had gone through, Josh's foster brother admitted his assault, and in 1993, Reitz became a regular, or I'm sorry, a sex offender. 
So apparently Josh was raised by extremely religious parents and they refused to seek any kind of counseling or put him on any kind of medication that he may have needed. Well, got to help him. So he wasn't able to cope with any of the trauma that he, you know, was exposed to. Jeez, that's and, too bad. And then I guess he had also been raped when he was 14 years old by someone that was very close and important to him. Nice job, parents. Way to so, go. So terrible, you know, background. But again, it doesn't give you any kind of permission to do something this horrific ever. So both were sentenced to death. But on April 25th, 2012, Connecticut abolished the death penalty. So their sentences were changed to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So Josh's defense team then filed a motion for a new trial, arguing that the trial should never have been held in Cheshire. They also argued that he was unfairly portrayed as the mastermind of the crime, saying that Hayes was the one to strangle Jennifer to death, as well as douse the home in gasoline. This motion was denied by the judge, who believed both men to be equally complicit in their crimes. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe haze a little bit more but i mean you are responsible for people dying like innocent sweet people like go to hell absolutely so in the aftermath there was um obvious upset about the police's response to the murders after the 911 recordings re- were reviewed it revealed that police were skeptical of jennifer after jennifer and steven drove off police were skeptical of jennifer yes well, okay i'd love to hear why Police, uh, lieutenant. That's, that's my. That's why I kept going back to that call. I wasn't necessarily saying that. You know, the it was more the police asking. Like, does she is she believing them? Like, does she think that it's actually going to happen? The guy's like, I don't know. It doesn't seem like. Or the girl. It doesn't like, no. matter. You have yeah. to respond appropriately. Treat every situation like it's the, the it's worst possible emergency. scenario. Yeah. So, um, the police lieutenant James Frazano can be heard telling the dispatcher Donald Miller. Apparently, she came into the bank. She tried to get some money out. One of the accounts was in her husband's name, and then she says, well, my kids are at home tied up, so we don't know if they really are or if she's just trying to get money at this point. She was calm. She didn't appear upset. She walked into the bank. She got the money. She was by herself. The other person was in the car. Oh, my God. So all you need to know, asshole, is this woman is saying her kids are tied up at home. That's the end of the story. Send some police there. That's what the hell the police are for. Exactly. And when you listen to a lot of the broadcasts, it was like the police were being so commended for the job that they did. Well, yeah. Whereas, I mean, they did a great job once they were there. Well, yeah, but they were already dead at that point. Well, here's the thing. What were they supposed to do, I guess? So here's more detail. So one police officer, like I said, was in the neighborhood when the initial 911 call came in at 921. Again, he got to the home before Jennifer and Hayes got back to the house. He had been ordered not to approach anyone or even make a phone call inside to determine what was going on. Well, here's the thing. If he approaches the car as it's coming in, then all of a sudden the guy might be like, hey, there's cops here. And then all of a sudden the whole thing goes down. You know, they wanted to avoid that. Right. Exactly. I get get it, too. I get it. But it's just it's a tough pill to swallow knowing the house was surrounded and all of this happened. They were all alive with the house surrounded and, and if, they all died. If you're a good cop and you're, he probably wishes he could go in. He probably wanted everybody to get there. He was ordered to stay outside right. and do nothing. Right. So um, with the time that Bill got out of the house and managed to make it to his neighbor's house, he noticed people behind the trees. He had no idea that his wife alerted the authorities and that 911 had been called. He had no idea. So he's laying in his neighbor's driveway. His ankles are still bound and a police officer is holding a rifle at Bill. 
well, not he knowing who it, yeah. who it is sure. and didn't want to take take off his bindings he's either. Like, get down, get you down. Know, he doesn't know Show if your hands. he's a suspect or a victim. Sure. So police indicated that they were dealing with a hostage situation and couldn't know how many perpetrators were in the home or what kind of weapons they might have. They were told not to approach anyone, like I said, not to enter the property. They were instructed to set up perimeter and observe. This is the uh, very similar to Uvalde, Texas, you know, where yeah. all the kids got slain down. The, kid, the, the police responsibility is not to protect people that are in danger. It's to just uphold the law. So in which I, I didn't learn until this year. And that's a really tough pill to swallow. So unlike firefighters who are going into burning buildings, police, their their duty is not to go in and save you. Their duty is to just get the, the people breaking the law. Okay. So that, and I think that needs to change. I mean, I, it's tough. I would never want to be a police officer. That's a never. hard as hell job. Not, I mean, not easy. You know, and you don't get paid a lot until you get up to the higher ranks. So it's uh, it's a tough you know, a tough pill to swallow, but they, again, constitutionally, they are only there. They're not to protect and serve us. They're there to serve. They're there to, to, to uphold the law. They're not here to protect, okay. even though it says it in a lot of things. You may have seen a lot of people dropping that because they're not really here to protect us, okay. which sucks. Not <laughs> Who protects us? Nobody is the, is the situation. So in 2010, um, Bill was interviewed on with, or Oprah interviewed Bill, and he indicated that he had been staying with his parents from the time he was released from the hospital to that point. He said without, you know, his, the love and support from his family, he wouldn't have been able to survive. There's no way. Oh, the first thing that goes in my head, if I'm in that situation, I don't want to be alive because no. I'm going to be in so much pain. It's not worth it. And and he didn't want to. And um, while Bill was recovering from the hospital, still out of it from the trauma of the attack, he didn't even yet know what what had happened, sure. like how what the ending outcome was. Well, his brain is so messed up. So his Not dad came to see him, and that's when he first realized that his whole family hadn't made it, and that he was the sole survivor of the home invasion. And then ultimately, you're like brain telling your brain, just please kill me, please, 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 because. <laughs> Like every day you wake up, you're thinking of your wife and daughters. That, then what happened to them? I and mean, you hear all these freaking details. That's even worse. Like, and you were there and like, you know, it's like, oh, I wish I could have gotten out sooner. Of course, he's blaming himself and blaming whatever. It's like, no, it's not your fault that these psychopaths came in exactly. and decided to beat you. Like, it's it's so much mental. I can't even imagine what that dude is going through. I know. So on July 28th, 2007, only five days after the murders, Bill had just been released from the hospital and was able to speak at his family's memorial service, which I can't even imagine how hard that would be. But at the same time, you got to do it and you Mm got to come hard and you got to like a guy like that, I'm sure had quite a speech prepared. And he did. And he reminisced about how he and Jennifer had met at children's hospital of Pittsburgh. He said that Jennifer was a new nurse and he's like, yeah. And I had about 30 seconds of experience. I was a third year resident student or med student. I should say he said he was cocky. He tried to correct her on how to take a blood pressure. And it quickly became clear that Jennifer was the expert on the care. (laughs) And uh, she basically was like the, expert of children and actually showed him a thing or two yeah so bill said his hardest times are at night when he's falling asleep and when he's just waking up in the morning he said he didn't sleep more than for a a couple hours a night for about two to three months after the attack just replaying everything over and over about what happened 
all the what ifs of the situation. What if he was able to get free sooner? What if Jennifer had stayed longer at the bank? Just on and on repeat. Well, you talk about how you can't fall asleep because you have things going on in your head about normal daily life. You know, that's hard enough. Imagine your whole family is dead and you were there and like, and all these details, you know every single little detail because freaking news and everything. Of what happened when. Yeah, and I guess a podcast like ours. Right. So since the murders of his entire family, Bill stopped practicing medicine and put his attention to managing the Pettit Family Foundation to honor his wife and daughters. And then there's also another member, um, a resident, I should say, from Cheshire, who created Cheshire Lights of Hope. And each year, the town streets are absolutely lined with luminaries. And their goal is to bring locals together and for people to get to know one another in the community. In August of 2012, Bill married Christina Ploff, who met, they met while she was volunteering for the foundation, the Pettit Family Foundation. Oh, that's nice. And the two have a son together. Bill has become involved in politics, and he's a Connecticut state representative. Wow, that's incredible. So Um, that's the horrifically tragic story of the Pettit family murders. I'm glad he was able to find a little bit of happiness, you know, someone to love. um, And I'm sure his wife would have wanted it that way. Right. And and she obviously had, she was volunteering at the foundation and, you know, and helping a good-hearted person. Yeah. I had just... Uh, I said it a couple times. I can't even imagine. Like, you know, you got to be stay busy. Otherwise, your mind just at night, that's where you sit and think about your day. And it's like, I just still wish my wife and daughters were here. Like, and then every morning, it's like you're crushed with the realization that they're gone. But yes, he did want to die. And he's a religious man. But he said that he and God were basically in a, st- a standoff. Like, he didn't believe that this was God's will. Yeah, that's why I find it hard to believe the whole Jesus and God thing. But hey, that's for another uh, episode. So it's um, it's tough. I mean, you, you got to have really bad and really with to have your really good, like we say before. But that's that's this is worse than really bad. Exactly, it's Poor the Bill. worst thing that could ever happen. I'm sorry, Bill, but it, yeah, he's honoring the memory and Christina as well. Still, I'm hoping they're they're keeping things going. And that's all you can do. Yep. So thank you all for being here. Yeah, and if you enjoyed this episode at all, um, we'd really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Um, It would help us out quite a bit, and it's free for you outside of about 13 seconds of your time. So uh, if you can go over there, click a five-star and say, hey, really enjoyed this episode or whatever it might be, we would really, really appreciate it. Absolutely. And lastly, thank you so much to our patron members, Patreon members, Colleen, Lily, Karen, Nadine, Allie, Michael, Kelly, and Dominic. We really appreciate you. If you'd like to be a patron, just uh, look in the show notes and uh, go ahead and click over there. Take a look. A couple different tiers and you get some bonus episodes. Um, a new bonus episode every couple weeks for those on tier two and three. And um, tier one, you get one bonus episode a month. So good stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening and thank you, Allison. Great job. Thank you so much. And we'll, until next time, we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.